last night or uh, yeah, uh, last night or in the early hours of the morning, there was um, an earthquake not far from here up in Truckee. So uh, we felt the house shake and the earth tremble and, and uh, I was like, oh, no, fortunately nobody was harmed and no buildings came down or anything so far as we know, but uh, it was felt kind of far and wide. And so we were saying this morning, how fitting that there should be an earthquake just before we talk about the Buddha, because it's said that when uh, a Buddha arises in the world, when, when a little Bodhisattva, when the little baby Bodhisattva is born, who is destined to become either a Buddha or a, a, a wheel-turning monarch, like a great Dhamma leader king, so they say go one way or the other way, depending on whether that little being moves towards, towards worldly um, manifestation or, or uh, leads, leans towards renunciation. So the Buddha, little Bodhisattva Siddhartha Gotama, it said that when he was born, the earth shook and quaked and trembled and that there was a great commotion through the heavens that some great being has come into the world with great potential. And uh, it said that at the moment of his enlightenment, after all of that uh, intense striving that he went through before realising the full awakening, that at that moment of awakening, again, the earth shook and quaked and trembled. And uh, when he first gave the teaching to a group of ascetics that he'd been practising with um, after his enlightenment, and he was able to pass on the the insight to some degree to one of those five ascetics who he'd been practicing with. Again, the earth shook and quaked and trembled and all the heavens called out that the Dhamma wheel has been turned. You know, Kondanya, one of the ascetics, has understood the Dhamma. And so it was like a, a great celebration commotion all up through the the heavens right up to the to the brahma world and also when the buddha passed away when he breathed his last breath it said that the earth shook and quaked and trembled so we had that shaking and quaking and trembling last night <clears throat> none of us we just had a little check-in none of us had any particularly profound insights but maybe one of you did so um, <clears throat> yeah, so the Buddha, you know, he he he's a he's a human being, like we are. He's a he he has a body. He had a body that, you know, needed to be fed and kept warm and comfortable and bathed and um, got sick and had pain and got old and eventually died. So that's the human experience. There's no way around those things. Um, but he was one who found freedom within this human life. And uh, you, you may know the story that when he was uh, a young man, he, you know, he grew up in a very wealthy household of wealth and power and lots of uh, you know, opportunities for education and delightful sensual experiences of all kinds and learning lots of skills and so he had a rather wonderful life, as good as it, you can get, really. And uh, and yet there was something something inside that was just gnawing away that 
this isn't it, you know, I, I just not finding that, that deep happiness. And so he went off on in search of, of freedom, of peace, of true peace. And his search took him to different teachers. You know, he had the, the insight into, into aging, sickness and death, as, as we spoke before, seeing that in others, recognizing, oh, just as others get sick, others get old, others die, then that will happen to me too. And if that's the, if that's the truth, then what is the meaning of this life? What is the purpose of this life? How do I live this life? So he went off on his quest, um, leaving his wife and child behind him. And first of all, practiced with a very excellent meditation teachers who were alive at the Buddha's time, who had very uh, strong skill in the jhanas, the absorptions, the meditative absorptions. So he practiced with one to the point where he was at, an, at a, um, a little bit better, actually, than the teacher. And the teacher was very impressed and said, you know, well, why don't you stay with me? And, you know, you can have all my students and, and, and you will be the leader of this sangha, this community. And then the Buddha said, no, you know, I haven't found what I'm looking for. I haven't found that, that peace, that happiness that I'm looking for. So he went to another of the teachers, another teacher who was even more skilled in these meditative absorptions. And uh, the Buddha practiced with this, this uh, master and came to the point where they were equal. He was equally skilled in the meditative, meditative absorptions. And so this teacher said, why don't you stay with me? You know, we'll, we'll teach together and uh, we'll, we'll guide all these people in how to practice these meditative absorptions. And the Buddha said, well, I still haven't found the peace that I'm looking for. I'm paraphrasing it. We don't know exactly what he said, but, you know, still looking for that, that peace. And even though it, profound peace is, is experienced in those meditative absorptions, it's still conditioned. We still need to put the right causes and conditions in place for them to, for the mind to go into those places. And then at some point, the mind has to withdraw from those and, and engage in the world once again. And the Buddha was looking for something more, more complete. So he had experienced the, the, the greatest pleasures that one can experience in worldly life, you know, wonderful, comfortable, beautiful, delightful, pleasant experiences that one can experience through the five senses and then he had also experienced the most profound pleasures and refined pleasures through the mind through meditation practice and so he left that path of, of seeking the most sublime pleasure and he became an ascetic and practiced very intensely as an ascetic and Ayodhamadipa is going to speak a little bit more about that later so I'm just going to touch on that but he experienced the most severe intense pain and and um, bodily difficulties and bodily bodily uh, 
dukkha through his ascetic practices. And then he left that and, and sought a different way. So it's said that uh, he says in the suttas, whatever pleasure, so he's kind of saying this to us, you know, he's passing on to us, whatever pleasure you might experience, whether it is uh, worldly pleasure or meditative pleasure, whatever pleasure you may experience, the Buddha has experienced equal to or greater than the pleasure that you can experience. And whatever suffering, whatever pain you have experienced, the Buddha has experienced greater, equal to or greater than that painful experience. So he had a, a very, very broad experience of what is possible in this world in terms of pleasure and pain. And, and he turned away from the path of pleasure seeking and he turned away from the ascetic path, the path, the path of pain. And he found the middle way between the two extremes. So as I start talking about the Buddha, I feel like you can have a, you know, you can have a month long talking about the Buddha. <laughs> There's so much to say, so many stories and so many uh, important points. Um, so the Buddha found the path between the two extremes and it's said that, you know, he, he discovered a path, the, the Noble Eightfold Path. And it was like... Um, the images of like walking through a, a dense forest and finding an ancient path that had been forgotten and then following that path and finding that it led to an ancient city with where there had once been gardens and pools and mansions and uh, places to play and enjoy. And, uh, and it had been lost and forgotten. And then in the, with that noble eightfold path, that was like this path, this forgotten path that leads to that place of freedom, of awakening, of, of peace, of joy, of contentment. So the Buddha found this path and he passed it on. You know, he, he taught us about it so that we can also follow this quite practical path whole life path and uh, it's never quite one's never quite sure you know how accurate the the, the stories are and aren't so I'm just going to show you know in the in the Pali canon there's the story of and after his enlightenment he had a he had a doubt that he'd be able to actually pass on the teaching there's this sense like, oh, it's so subtle. Who's ever going to get this? People love to enjoy pleasure and run away from pain. Who's ever going to really get it? You know, maybe I should just stay in meditation and not trouble myself with with all of those disciples who are going to, you know, get confused and not understand and make mistakes and and ask me for guidance and. So it's said that that thought arose in his mind and uh, was was heard by one of the great devas, the Brahma, actually. And uh, so 
that great deva came down and spoke to the Buddha and said, oh, please, out of compassion, for those who have little dust in their eyes, teach the Dhamma, because, you know, beings will benefit from this teaching. And so the Buddha contemplated that and, and decided, yes, I will, I will give these teachings. So this story is passed down, but maybe, maybe he had a doubt or maybe he didn't, who knows. One would, I would kind of like to think that he would just want to help sentient beings, however difficult it might be to do, but who knows. But anyway, for those who have little dust in their eyes, so all of us here, you know, we may not be completely free of dust, there's enough clarity that we are drawn to the Dhamma, that we, that we see through the cycle of, you know, the endless cycle of seeking pleasure, getting, getting a, you know, having the gratification, and then it changes, and then it's ended, and then we seek again. You know, we, we, we may not have managed to find the way out of that cycle yet, but there's enough understanding that that goes around and around. And there's this... Uh, attraction of the heart and mind towards the Dhamma. So for, you know, for our benefit and for countless, the benefit of countless beings, the Buddha taught the Dhamma. And, uh, and he taught in many different ways for different people. So he recognized that, that people come in all shapes and sizes, in all different ways and uh, different minds, relate differently and uh, so the teaching was given there were some sort of formulaic teachings that have that have been passed on as kind of systems that can be uh, disseminated through other other teachers and then there would be also the buddha's intuition you could say so it would said that in the mornings he would wake up and scan the 10,000 world system with his mind and see who is ready to hear the Dhamma, who is ripe, who is ready right now. And sometimes he would walk for days to get to a place where he saw, oh, there's that weaver there in that little hut working away whose heart is ripe for the Dhamma. So then he would go to, go to the town or the village where this person was that he could see was really ready. And, uh, and, and you know, crowds would come because he got a good name uh, over time. Crowds would come to listen to him teaching. And then he was, uh, he would, there's this one story where he would wait, he would wait for this, this one person who he knew if they, when they hear the teaching, they're going to have profound insight. So, you know, many people get to hear the teaching, but he's waiting for this one person. And then this particular story, that person has to, um, a cow escapes and he has to run after this cow. So he's out, you know, the Buddha's there sitting with the great, you know, with the, the, the Sangha with him and many, many people have come to hear him teach and then he's stalling. He's not going to teach yet. And then they're saying, please, will you teach the Dhamma? And he's like, it's not time yet. And then more time goes by. And, and then he knows that this guy, this weaver is, running after his cow, trying to get it back, trying to catch it and get it back into the pen. And so people are asking, please, will you teach the Dhamma? And he's saying, it's not time yet. Until eventually this, this guy manages to catch the cow, get it in the pen, get, you know, exhausted, get to the, 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 to the place where the Buddha is 
you know, meeting people, sits down and then he's, you know, he's arrived. And then again, would you, Lord, would you offer the teaching for the benefit of people, for the benefit, benefit of all of us? And again, the Buddha says, not, it's not time yet. And then he asks that somebody feeds this man, gives him some food, because he recognizes that he's exhausted, hungry. So even though he's arrived, he, he can't really think straight because he's too hungry, too exhausted, and he won't hear the teaching clearly. So then this man is given food and he's like settled and then he's part of the, the group and then the Buddha gives the teaching and he has this profound insight. So this was the kind of care and and um, love, you know, that, that, that the Buddha had for for people. And for 40 years, you know, he, he walked barefoot around the dusty roads of India, walking hundreds and hundreds of miles in order to share the teaching for anyone who was ready, <clears throat> anyone who had little dust in their eyes. And he, he established the, the fourfold assembly of uh, which now we we think of as the manifold assembly because we don't so much divide so tidily into male female there's there's a much bigger spectrum but in the in that time that was the sort of societal norm uh, or accepted norm in society and uh, so he established the first the order of bhikkhus of, of monks uh, and in the beginning you know, even even up to there being hundreds of monks, they were all fully enlightened. So people were very ripe for the Dharma at that time. Many people were practicing in different ways in India at that time, and then they were just ready for that last little um, push, you could say, of letting go of the sense of I am. And then uh, the Buddha established the order of bhikkhunis, Buddhist nuns and again there were there were said to be hundreds of awakened bhikkhunis through many times you know throughout the buddha's life and he also established the order of uh, upasika and upasika so that would be uh, lay followers who keep who are not like non-monastic follow buddhist followers who keep the five precepts as a, as a basis of, of ethics and who practice in order to awaken. And uh, they were, you know, hundreds of highly realized people in that community too. And uh, so there were many, many people practicing and there were many, many people waking up in the Buddha's time. And uh, The, the teaching is it's like the, the wheel of Dhamma that I mentioned earlier. This is turned through practice, study, and insight. So we need to understand the teaching. We need to practice the teaching. And then the, the, awake, the insight that arises through that practice is what keeps turning the wheel. And uh, so it's still going. It's still turning right now. And, uh, you know, as often we can think of the Buddha as, uh, you know, we have these images of the Buddha that um, 
stylized in different ways and they they always show a peacefulness they always have this sense of peacefulness about them calm and contentment and peacefulness and uh, so we can forget that the buddha was uh, you know a human being uh, who had to deal with all kinds of stuff you know the bodily dukkhas that we have and and also the well, he had the monastic sangha could be quite problematic at times. Surprising what the monks and nuns got up to to cause all kinds of problems. So, you know, he would something would some problem would happen, and people would complain, and then they'd go to the Buddha and they complain, "Oh, this monk, he's doing this, or this nun, she's doing that," and and then he would he would call that monk or that nun to him, and then he'd ask, "You know, I'm hearing about this. Is this true?" And then if it was true, then he would say, "You know." don't do this okay and they would make a, a precept about it okay here's a rule that everybody has to follow don't do this stupid thing you know or um or it might be that uh, that one should do something in the in the community supporting the community and somebody some people don't want to do it and then he'd say okay monastic saying you you should do this thing that you live when you live together with others so there are lots and lots of those those um rules you know people coming to him with this having done this thing and that thing and when you read through them you just think my goodness you know he had incredible patience incredible patience to deal with that and it, through doing through, through that patience and that um, responsiveness he created a form that is you know still alive today flourishing in many countries that has carried the dhamma over over many you know these 2600 years and there were also people who were jealous of the Buddha, you know, who resented him, who didn't like that he had a big following, that he was popular, that people loved him. And uh, he had uh, attempts made on his life. He had people try to frame him. Somebody tried to say that they got, they were pregnant from the Buddha, a woman pretending she had a, a piece of wood under her dress <laughs> not very convincing and you know trying to pretend trying to try to pretend that the buddha made her pregnant so that he would be you know um so that his followers would no longer support him and then there was a uh, even a incident where an and one of the attempts on his life where an elephant was uh, a tamed elephant was made drunk uh, you know, so given all kinds of fermented liquor and made drunk and then taunted and and prodded and poked and then sent off in the direction that the buddha was walking with the intention that it would trample him to death and uh, so in this story that the elephant was called nalagiri and uh, you know this is this image of this elephant that's been captured as a little baby elephant in the forest and then you know tied up and then gradually trained and tamed and taught to do i'm not sure whether it was a working elephant or a or a, maybe a, a war elephant elephants were used for labor and also in wars <clears throat> for fighting um so he was trained in these ways and then and has lived had lived he was living for a long time with with people you know in the town away from his jungle environment and then and then made drunk so confused and and then prodded and poked and 
triggered and annoyed, you know, and then is sent off in the direction where the Buddha is walking along a road. So, so that the Buddha sees this elephant coming towards him and then starts to generate the quality of metta, the quality of kindness, which was immensely strong for the Buddha. And so it's generating this, this energy field of metta and this elephant's running towards him, furious, crazy, drunk, and then he just keeps on generating this field of metta. And it's said that as the elephant entered the field of metta, it started to slow down, started to feel that, that love and was touched by it. And as it slowed down, it started to remember being a little, not that we know for sure, but the story goes, it starts to remember being a little elephant free in the forest once upon a time with his mother before he was caught and started to remember the sadness of having been caught and tied up and, and uh, you know, beaten sometimes and the loneliness and, the, and then slowly you know, feels through, the elephant starts to feel through this, this sadness and this loss and, uh, and it slows down and comes to a stop in front of the Buddha who is just radiating this love, 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 love. And then the Buddha, uh, the uh, elephant kneels down and uh, there they are, the two of them, the elephant and the Buddha, in this exchange of how it is to be alive this uh, the suffering and the, and the love that the Buddha taught brought sorry the suffering that we can experience human and animal and the love that the Buddha brought to that the healing that he brought to that and the possibility to do things differently that we don't have to you know react from our old triggers and our old patterning you know we all have stuff we all come in with stuff we all we all get, you know, we, we all experience separation and loss and being poked and prodded in ways we wish we weren't or being abandoned. And, and that's part of our life, but it's not what we have to live from. So the Buddha is showing us this, this kind of amazing and beautiful example. If, you know, with work, with, with effort, with, study and practice and and letting go that we can start to live from a different place from a different uh, from a bigger perspective so the buddha lived this he lived wisdom and love through his life through those 40 years. And also I mentioned earlier that he left his wife and son in order to go on this search. And of course, you know, this is not a great thing. It's not something we would encourage everyone to do. But, you know, he, he in doing that, he did that in order to find 
the path of awakening. And then when he found it, he went back. He went back to his family. He went back to his town. He went back to his people. And he taught the Dhamma. He taught people the way to find freedom. And uh, and his son, even as a little boy, seven years old, became a monk and became fully enlightened quite soon. And his wife also became a nun and became fully enlightened. So it was one of those things, you know, if he'd have just left and never, never shared what he found, it would be a very different story. But it's like he went off in search of a treasure and then he came back and he shared that treasure with everybody that he could. And like all of us, eventually he had to let go of, of the body. And uh, his death was uh, painful. You know, he was given a, a meal by a, a devoted disciple. And the meal was unfortunately um, poisonous. So we're not quite sure whether it was mushrooms or pork, one of those two. The word can be translated differently from the Pali. But uh, he ate this meal knowing that it would be the cause of his death. And he was an old man by then, he was 80 or so. And, uh, and then he had these painful, racking, piercing feelings in the belly. And uh, gradually that, that pain and that, the poison of that food uh, led to the end of his life. And before he died, he said, Chanda, the, the person who offered the meal, should know that this meal that was was of great merit that he offered this meal with devotion and faith and love and so that intention is is all you just rest there with that intention there there is no no harm has been done by the one who offered this meal so you know taking care to make sure because if you imagine if you offered the meal to the buddha that was his last meal, I mean, that he died from it, you'd feel pretty bad about it. But uh, he took the, the care and trouble to make sure that the guy who offered the meal at least heard from the Buddha what you did was good, what you did was beautiful in intention. <clears throat> so you know, the Buddha finally left his body and, uh, and left the teaching. All things are impermanent. All conditioned things are transient. Strive on with diligence. So he encouraged us to keep going with the practice, no matter what, no matter what happens. So please, you know, take the Buddha as a, as a guiding star, as a, as a light, as a, as a possibility, it, when times are difficult, when things are challenging, just remember that it wasn't, even for a Buddha, it wasn't always easy, but he found the way. So I want to offer that this morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.